Our reading this morning of God's Word comes from 1 Samuel 18 and 1 Samuel 20, which will be on pages 241 and 244. This is God's Word. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all, all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the woman came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. He said, They have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. What more can they have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. And then 1 Samuel 20, verse 41. And as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in this name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between me and you, between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, by now you've heard me quote uh, pretty regularly from my favorite um, writer for the Atlantic, a lady by the name of Elizabeth Bruning. And about uh, almost two years ago, she had a Twitter thread where she was tweeting about a friend of hers uh, whose name was Freddie, uh, who was a journalist and had recently been canceled. It was coming under a lot of scrutiny in the social media. Listen to how she responds to this. And I saved it because I thought it was fascinating. She says, here's the thing, though. Freddie is my friend. That's a bond, not a lark. I care about him regardless of his mistakes. I believe in him. And I know he's an excellent writer. And let me further add, just for the record, I think the effort to bully, intimidate, and threaten people until they sever all relationships with people who've made mistakes online, canceled people, is pathetic and reprehensible. I detest it. It's cruel and stupid. Friendship is real. It's enduring. It's a thick bond. You're not obligated, sorry, you're not obligated to dispense with friendships as soon as someone becomes a poor accessory to your brand. <laughs> he says, friendship is critical. No one, no criminal, no monster should be forced into open air solitary confinement. I don't believe maintaining friendships with people who've made mistakes is harmful. In fact, I think shunning people into ever-narrowing circles where their mistake is an object of constant rumination and perhaps celebration is the worst possible thing we can do for them. Friends can and should act as emissaries between a person who has acted wrongly and in so doing excluded themselves from society and the society itself, which should have some interest in reconciliation, as should the exiled. But friends are the ones who ease this process. Friends, he says, are a good thing. Like I say that whole tweet thread because I think she's saying something really profound about the historical moment in which we found ourselves when you think about friends. 
because loss of close friends is actually getting more and more documented in our day. About a year and a half ago, the Survey Center for American Life released a study that said that 15% of men and 10% of women answered that, they, that of, of all their friends, they don't say they have any close friends. 10 to 15%. Lots of people think that this is the reason for the uh, uh, social polarization that we have going on in our country as well. Political writer David French actually explains in the absence of genuine friends, what ends up happening is, is people look for community online. But these online communities are almost always centered around political movements. And he says, but the problem is, that's a real poor substitute for genuine friendship because those bonds are so fragile. You have to have this extraordinary degree of agreement and conformity. And so these friendships that are built through years of engagement with politics and activism, he says, can vanish in the blink of a tweet. You're not with us? Well, then we're not with you. Listen to what he says. He says, and unless you have robust family relationships and deep friendships that aren't so fragile and aren't so contingent, then the sense of loss can be emotionally and spiritually catastrophic. There is a prime reason why you can't fact-check, plead, or argue a person out of their conspiracy theory. Because you're trying to fact-check, plead, and argue them out of their community. Now look, I'm going into all this simply because we need to consider this morning really one of the most extraordinary friendships in the whole Bible. The friendship between King David and his political rival's son, a guy named Jonathan. And for no other reason than just the amount of ink that gets spilled in 1 Samuel on this friendship, we need to consider and realize that at the heart of the king is a heart that takes delight in a good friend. That's the lesson. But if we've lost the ability to recognize and much less develop good friends, I'm not sure these passages are going to make much sense. And I'll tell you how I know. Later on in 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 26, Jonathan actually passes away. And David recites this beautiful lyrical poem where he says this. He says, I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. I cannot tell you how many secular commentators I read on this who read into that some homosexual relationship between David and Jonathan. I think it seems that our culture can not even imagine two men having that kind of deep connection without sexualizing it. And of course, honestly, the truth of the matter is there's not a hint of sexuality in the story of David and Jonathan. I honestly think that it says far more about our fixation as a sex-crazed culture than it ever does about the actual text of Scripture. Now, David and Jonathan, in this little dangerous dance that they're doing around Saul's madness... I think unlocks for us a powerful call to understand what real friendship is and to find the Bible's radical way in which we can make them and enjoy them. So three points this morning I want to consider this idea of friendship between Jonathan and David. I want to see Saul as the anti-friend, Jonathan as the true friend, and then David as the ultimate friend. Let's take Saul first of all. Again, I always think it's helpful to see what friendship is not before you see what it is. And King Saul's hatred, his growing dis despising of David, provides us with, I think, some key insights into just what a warped friendship really looks like. And it all starts from the chant of the women in the crowd. Look at, look at verse 7. 
These women, as David marches back to the city, say they sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. Now, look, when I was a kid, I remember reading this and thinking to myself, well, that's kind of mean. I mean, I don't know why you got to sort of highlight the fact that Saul is just as average as he is when you compare him to David. But this is where you really need to do a little Bible study, and it'll help you unpack what's actually going on here. Because it turns out that when warriors came back into a city, it was fairly customary for them to sing celebratory songs after great military victories. And so the chorus, though, that they're singing actually ends up celebrating not just David, but actually David and Saul. Now, how do I know that? And why does Saul take offense at it? Well, look, what's interesting about biblical Hebrew poetry is it's actually a fairly common idiom to use that thousands and tens of thousands phrase. And it's just synonymous for a lot, okay? For instance, if you go to Psalm 91.7, it says this, A thousand may fall by your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. Notice, there's no comparison being made between those who fall at your side and those who are at your right hand. It's just saying that it's a lot of people. Or how about this, Micah 6, 7. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? They're not comparing the rams and the rivers of oil. They're just, it's a literary device to emphasize the quantity between the two. No one's making this a comparison. So when the women sing this song as David enters in, they're not, they're not making some controversial political statement at all. They're not saying something literal but figurative. This is right after David kills Goliath. They're just singing a song of celebration at this happy moment in the nation's life. You kind of want to walk up to Saul and be like, nobody's making this about you, Saul. But that's exactly the way he takes it. And this is where I think this story gets fascinating. Because you see Saul interpreting what's going on around him in the worst possible sense that it can be taken and immediately thinks that David is after his throne. Interesting. Have you ever known anybody like this? Maybe you're this person. They find out something through the grapevine about you and they suddenly their mind races to the worst possible interpretation of the facts. This, I think, is the first signal that Saul probably doesn't have any friends himself. Because he doesn't, give, he doesn't give what I've come to believe is the most wonderful part about a friendship. You know what the best part of friendship is? It's called the benefit of the doubt. The benefit of the doubt that someone actually gives to you, right? <clears throat> In other words, when you, when you believe someone's wronged you or maybe done something horrible, do you turn away from your friend? Do you walk away from that? Or do you say to yourself, you know what, I'm not going to believe that report until I know all the facts. That's called the benefit of the doubt. It's called a good friend. But see, Saul can't do this. And in verse 8 and 9, you actually get the psychology that's going on in his heart. Look what it says. And Saul was very angry, and this displeased him. And then this phrase, and Saul eyed David from that day on. Look, the Hebrew there is actually just a little bit weird, but you can literally translate that phrase, and Saul had eyes of jealousy on David. Look, so here's the principle. Saul is a terrible friend because he's jealous of David. I would argue that jealousy is actually the antithesis, the opposite of friendship. Why? Years ago, I heard pastors say the simplest definition of what jealousy is. Jealousy goes like this. He, 
or she, but me. That's jealousy. <laughs> In other words, I can, I, when I look at that person's success, when I see what they've done, it makes me hate them. Why? Because I deserve that. And invariably what happens is, is everyone else's situation in life is really about you. It's about your situation in life. Jealousy makes you so totally into yourself that you can't even see what's going on with other people without it somehow relating to you. You know, I wanted to be the one who got married, and so I can't rejoice with them when they're up at the altar. You know, I'm the one who wanted to be the gifted one in the group, so I can't get excited when I see someone with better gifts than I do. I wanted the promotion at work, and so I certainly can't celebrate my friend's success. Jealousy at its core is nothing more than an aggravated self-pity. That's what's going on. Everyone's being unfair to you. It's all about you, the circumstance you're in. Which is the reason why jealousy not only represents the opposite of real friendship love, it's also just a terrible life. Because you're spending all your time in comparison with other people, which means invariably, you're always going to be unhappy. Fortunately, though, there's another way. And Jonathan is the one who models it for us. So we see Saul as the anti-friend, but notice Jonathan as the true friend. The Goliath incident has just happened, and so Jonathan takes special notice of this young man who comes into the royal household. household. And so the, but, but the text is kind of sparse. We don't know why, but in verse 1 it says this, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Jonathan's going to show us what real friendship is about. And I would submit to you that in just these few verses, you see it in three ways. There's three things about Jonathan's friendship that he does. The first thing is this. Jonathan literally abandons his status for David. You realize that David and Jonathan, these two were not peers. You, this often gets missed in the way the story gets told. We know that David was about 30 years old when he became king. The text tells us that specifically. But if you put together some of the other age clues in the story, you'll find that Jonathan was probably actually more like 20 to 25 years older than David. It means that Jonathan was probably old enough to be David's father. But not only that, Jonathan was also royalty. Here comes David, this peasant farmer, but Jonathan himself is next in line for the throne of Israel. And yet Jonathan loves David just like he does a little brother. But you have to wrap your mind around exactly what Jonathan was giving up in order to even have this relationship with David. Jonathan has given up every single benefit that would have secured his future going forward. That's what he sacrificed. So the first idea here is that friends, as it turns out, set their interest aside for you. That's what a friend does. Second thing you see is Jonathan as a friend is how he, I'm using this phrase, how he confers his privilege to David. Look at verse, at verse 4. It says, Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. In other words, Jonathan literally cloaks David in all of the vestments of his royalty. I mean, those robes guaranteed that Jonathan was going to be treated differently. It's how people in the community were like, there goes the son of the king. It certainly depicted him as a powerful person as well. But see, Jonathan's not jealous of David. And so he could actually celebrate David that he was called to a position that was destined actually to be his. He just wanted to serve God the best way that he could. You actually could put it this way. Jonathan learned a new way. And I'm going to drop a little seed here. So we're going to talk about this more 
as the spring goes on, Jonathan began to give, give the world a new way to think about power. I do believe we're in an age where Christians have got to rethink what we mean and how we think about p- power, whether it's political power, personal power, social power, whatever. Because Jonathan seems to have discovered that real influence only comes when you set your power aside. Saul was a failure. Jonathan was a success. But he only did so by setting aside something that was rightfully his. One commentator put it this way. One could say that Jonathan, though he was born royal, did not consider royalty a thing to be grasped, but was happy and humble to, take, to humble himself and to take on the role of a servant. Do you hear Philippians 2 coming in there? Third thing. Jonathan then shows his friendship by cementing his commitment to David with a covenant. Look at verse 3. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. I think this is fascinating. Because Jonathan here shows us an interesting connection between our feelings and covenants and promises. Again, Jonathan felt love for David. But you know what? That wasn't enough. He needed to solidify that love with a promise, with a contract. And the question is, why would he do that? Well, because I think a friend knows that you don't always feel good about each other, even the best of friends. That something other than just my subjective feelings for someone has got to be present in order for there to be any hope for the relationship's future. So when Jonathan forges a covenant with David, it's as if Jonathan is... It's as if Jonathan is trying to fickle-proof his relationship to David. We're going to solidify this bond. I I don't want us to have to worry about how our feelings are, so we're going to to forge this covenant. Uh, Commentator uh, Eugene Peterson, I think, made a fantastic point in this regard. He says, Jonathan lives out the covenant in circumstances and conditions that are relentlessly anti-David. He's inviting you to think about what it took for Jonathan to be friends with David. For the rest of Jonathan's life, he serves in Saul's court, he fights with his father in the Philistine wars, and more than likely accompanying his father on the David hunts. (laughs) Jonathan walking all along with this. But circumstances do not cancel out the covenant. Rather, the covenant is used in the purposes of God to overcome the circumstances. This is his application. He says, many a covenantal friendship is leaved out similarly in Saul's court, in marital, family, work, and cultural conditions that are equally as hostile to vowed intimacy. But it's the covenant, not the conditions that carry the day. See what Peterson's getting at? He says, what it is that keeps someone in a relationship when the circumstances to that relationship basically stop serving the interests of one or the other? It's the promise. It's the promise that keeps you in. And Eugene Peter's simply saying that there has to be a bond bigger than your feelings or else this relationship to your spouse, this relationship to your family, this relationship to your coworkers at work, whatever it is, is always going to dissolve under the changing circumstances. But Jonathan learned a trick. He learned that the promise is the center. My circumstances have to bow to the promise, not the other way around. Might as well be consistent. We're going for every sermon Les preaches this spring to have a Lord of the Rings illustration. This one's no different. 
Because you're not going to find a better literary friendship, I don't think, than what you have between Frodo and Sam. Frodo, of course, is having to uh, uh, march towards Mount Doom to destroy the ring, but he collapses right before he can get there. He's gone too, much, gone too, too far. He can't move another inch. But suddenly Sam steps in. And listen to what he says. I think this is just beautiful, the way Tolkien does this. Sam looked at him and wept in his heart, but no tears came to his dry, stinging eyes. I said I'd carry him if it broke my back, he muttered, and I will. Come, Mr. Frodo, he cried. I can't carry it for you, but I can carry you and it as well. So you get up. Come on, Mr. Frodo, dear. Sam will give you a ride. Just tell him where to go and he'll go. That's what a friend does. He sets aside his own interests for the sake of the one that they love. Don't we all wish we had a friend like that? I think in our best moments, we wish that we could be friends like that. But let's be honest, that's hard. How is it possible that you and I gain any ability to be friends like that? Jonathan's friendship seems rare. How is that achieved? Well, I think looking at David's role in this friendship will help finish off that idea and understand how we get the power to be friends like that. Because David is the ultimate friend. And this is the reason why I want to read from chapter 20, verses 41 and 42, Because Jonathan has just kind of engineered this sort of secret message system through an unsuspecting boy about David's journey. And sadly, they have to say goodbye for the last time. It says this in the verse. He says, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and wept with one another. David weeping the most. Huh. That last line was the kicker for me. Why is it that the person who wrote this story needed to put that little detail in that when it came to comparing the two, David was the one who was most emotionally shattered by their parting. Well, I think there's two things that strike me in that one verse as significant. The first is this. David is still there. Even after all this confirmation God had given him, he's still acting like he's Jonathan's subordinate. That's why he bows three times. That's That's a complete submission on David's part to Jonathan. He bows three times. He shows complete respect for his status. I think that's fascinating. David is nowhere near officially king yet, but he knows it's his. But not once is he going to claim the kingship for his own until it's the right time. David is not in the business of cutting corners to God's plan which all our lights ought to start going off at that point. Because remember, this story is not just about King David. Because we know the whole Bible is a great big arrow pointing to the true and better David, to Jesus. In other words, David's life and his meticulousness with which he followed God's will concerning the kingship is a mirror, a shadow, if you will, of Jesus' meticulousness that he would follow on his people's behalf. We love making a big deal about this, and well, we should. Jesus wins this judicial righteousness for us, all of it pictured by his forefather, David. And in the Reformed tradition, we love this stuff. We love the doctrine of justification by grace through faith. This is why throughout the New Testament, you get this emphasis that Jesus was so focused on keeping the law perfectly in everything that he did, submitting himself even to the letter of the law, even to baptism at one point. Remember the conversation he has with John the Baptist in Matthew 4? Where John the Baptist is like, "Uh, why are you baptizing me? Or why am I baptizing you? You should baptize me. 
To which Jesus looks and says something interesting, right? Let it be so for now. For thus, it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, I'm obeying so that I can establish this perfect record on your behalf. And this is why Christians get so excited about this doctrine. Because now, we are no longer guilty in God's eyes. We have Jesus life record, if you will, speaking for us on our behalf. It's, of course it's good news for us. But here's the second thing about this verse that struck me. Because you know what I've noticed, and maybe it's because I'm getting old. <clears throat> that's not enough sometimes, is it? I've begun to realize that's not enough. In other words, I think you could be convinced of the judicial righteousness of your new status before God. You could check that mental box. But we can miss the friendship that results from that righteous declaration. In other words, the life of King David, I think, is screaming to us. It screams to us and to every Christian an almost unthinkable truth that when God comprehends his relationship to you, he does it in terms of a friend, of a friendship of someone that he likes, a friend that sticks closer than a brother. I think this is why the text is emphasizing the intensity of David's devotion over Jonathan's, because once in Christ, it seems as if there's this continual temptation not to lean on him alone for salvation, but to begin to live in a state of perpetual panic, thinking that this, this salvation on our behalf was won for us as some kind of fragile truce. We start to think to ourselves, maybe I can mess this friendship up by my faithlessness. But King David is showing us that the only way to love as he loves is to experience how loved you are by him. That's the math. Once you have been made his friend, he does not merely tolerate you. He loves you. And even better than that, for some of you, you need to hear this. He likes you. You ever get that idea when you bow your head in prayer that he's up there being like, oh, you again. It's been a while, don't you think? You're going to pray to me now that things are going bad for you? I always think that God looks at me that way. You want to know why? Because I treat people that way. I usually project on him the way in which I think he looks at me. But no, David comes along. David was weeping the most. Even in the midst of Jonathan's faithfulness, David looks and says, I'm more invested in this than you are. Ooh. What if we heard Jesus say that to us this morning? I'm more invested in this relationship than you are. Hmm. It's the reason I think in John 15, 15, Jesus says, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant doesn't know what the master is doing. I have called you my friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. Jesus is the best of friends so that you and I can go out and make better friends. There's a mission for you. Go back to that David French article I was talking about at the beginning. <clears throat> he makes some interesting points. At one point he says that one of the reasons, for whatever reason, this, this crisis of friendship in America is actually more, felt more acutely among men than it is women. And he speculates as to why that's the case. And he says, well, you know, it's probably the fact that in a lot of the spaces where men used to bond as friends, they're kind of organically disappearing. Workplace friendships, recreational spaces, those are less and less the kind of places where men for lack of a better word, can bond. But it makes you think, like, I wonder what would happen, though, if the church became one of those spaces 
where these kinds of friendships are forming and being nurtured. Hmm. What if we made a commitment that a portion of my faithfulness as a member of this church was going to be spent in the formation and the maintenance of good friends? And that that investment was going to be every bit as much as important to me as it was to stroke a check? Because we kind of know how to be financially faithful, right? Is it possible even that one of the best, most countercultural witnesses that we could put on display for our ever-secularizing culture is a group of people who know how to have friends. <laughs> but I'm equally convinced of this, that no one is going to have the fortitude to forge those friendships if we're walking around insecure in Jesus' love for us, his friends. Look, Jesus is the true and better David, but you know what else he is? He's also the true and better Jonathan as well. Because Jesus is a friend just like Jonathan. He is the one who abandoned his status for our friendship. He's the one who confers onto us all of his privilege. And he is the one who cemented for us in this great covenant the certainty of our relationship over and against our feelings and his. He's the true and better Jonathan. And so my advice is if we find ourselves in that midway point of worrying and concerned about where I found myself in the face of Jesus this morning, we need to look at David. You know, sitting there kissing his friend, no, not in a sexual way, but with compassion, with commitment, with dedication, bonded, dare we say, in a masculine way. I do think what it's saying is that if you know that you are loved like that, there's really nothing that can stop you. What if we had friends like that? Let's pray. And Lord Jesus, as the friend of sinners, we pray that you would draw near to us this morning. Father, for many of us, we do have tastes of that in friends who have loved us through all kinds of things. May we see them differently, that they are signposts pointing us to you. But Father, if we don't, if we are part of that 15 to 10% of people, would you come alongside us and give us a vision for what David is? Because he shows us what you have with us, that you're more invested in this than we are. And Father, the beauty of that means that we can rest secure and that we can respond to you with love. We love because you first loved us. And so we need you this morning as we close in song to show us that. Would you do it? Or we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.